0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's edition of Shut the Fuck Up. We are not done talking yet with my host, Sharla, and our very special guest, Monica Welty. Monica and I have known each other for almost 20 years. We were NIA teachers in San Francisco Bay Area together. Um, we led four NIA retreats to Martajade, Mexico, near Puerto Vallarta. And also, Monica, I don't know if you realize this, but we were like maverick door opening NIA teachers we were the first one to lead retreats I mean maybe some teachers in Europe were doing it but we like opened it up on the west coast yeah no one took retreats to Marta Hattie, and all the places like oh, um, no. you and I were kind of it but that's not true uh, Carrie and I went to Costa Rica that's right yeah, I remember I that. that so I just want to like give us some kudos for being like I said <laughs> Mavericks and um, a lot of things have happened since then, but now you live in Portland. And um, what are you up to now? We invited you on today to be, uh, do your reading and l- why don't you tell us what you're up to now?
1: Um, well, now I'm living in Portland, Oregon and um, I am a massage, normally I'm a massage therapist. Right now uh, I'm a housewife. I'm <laughs> um, getting used to that bacon sourdough bread. And then I'm a writer, an aspiring writer, I guess. Um, So I write um, a lot about grief and loss and love and um, and basically all memoir. Yeah, creative nonfiction.
0: Yeah, and you've taken classes with um, some of our favorite writing teachers. um mm-hmm. and I know Lydia Yuknovich because she presented at um, Esalen Writers Camp last year. Mm-hmm. And we had the pleasure of meeting Jen Pasteloff once. Uh, we read her book, but otherwise I, she, read a, she did a reading here in the East Bay and we went to see it. Oh, so really? we know that you have worked with them quite regularly.
1: Yeah, I worked with Jen just one time. Um, and then I have worked... Uh, uh, actually I have a, little, a funny little thing about Lydia because um so she Lydia was hosting this so I so I lost a baby we're going to talk about that yes. and I had just heard of Lydia like because she also lost a baby and so people were like oh you should read this book the chronology of water and then her name is Lydia Yuknovich, which is very unique and so I kept hearing it And then I saw that she was host, I took, I did take the, this Lydia and Jen do a um, workshop here, I think only in Portland, um, which is awesome if anyone wants to come to it, it's writing and yoga. Um, But uh, anyway, so she was, uh, so I, she was hosting this um, workshop for a manuscript and i had this like blog that i've written that's like 300 pages and i was like well that could be a manuscript like i didn't know anything about writing really and so i was supposed to have this whole manuscript written and i didn't i had 300 pages of blog and i was and I, but i got in to the workshop anyway um and so it's just funny because in lydia's book she talks about ways that she sort of like stole herself into things that she didn't belong in (laughs) yes that's right so so after our Mm -hmm. yeah totally so after that there was a couple of us who didn't actually have manuscripts (laughs) so after that they they after ours they kind of came down with you have to actually have a manuscript anyway so I was lucky enough I was lucky enough to work with Lydia on the sly um in the very very early stages of my of my learning to write so I'm heavily influenced by her
2: wow what a wonderful mentor to stumble upon
1: oh yeah early on yeah Yeah. early on and and also the way that her writing is so much about the body and Mm -hmm. and what's happening in your body and all of that which is like nia right she's just she's absolutely the most perfect mentor uh for me and just also her style of writing and the people that she attracts who are writing just really Really innovative um, structure and form, and it's it's just been incredible to be a part of that of the community that surrounds her. So, yeah,
0: nice, nice. Um, how is it going for you? Before I have you read, I really want you to read your stuff. You are right now a gig worker, so you're not working at the moment.
1: Well massage. So I have my own business, but it's, um, you know, that our governor has deemed it unessential, which I guess, you know, and also, you know, you come into direct, very direct contact with people. So, so yeah, I'm not working at the moment, but, um, so I'm home with the kids and stuff. So I'm also not writing. I thought, uh, it's been an interesting self-study. I think this quarantine time, because all of the reasons that I wasn't writing before are gone. hmm so now I have new reasons <laughs> Not right? So now I'm like, Oh, I'm just making up reasons. Right. That's
2: what, that's what creative writing is all about being yeah. creative about the reasons for not writing. <sighs> no, I, I don't think you're alone. In fact, I think no. you're pretty typical from all the other writers I know where they're, they're talking about, gosh, I have all this time now and I can't write. Yeah. However, now Danielle is writing.
0: She's prolific. Uh, No, it goes in bits and spurts. No, 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 it goes in bits and spurts and then all of a sudden I do nothing again. But um, yeah, but it's okay, it's gonna gonna come back.
2: My theory is we're all grieving to some degree and the types of things we might write are about our grieving. I mean, it's hard to work on some project that you started pre-pandemic. I mean, I'm trying to write a memoir a coming of age memoir, which sometimes seems unbelievably self-indulgent and uninteresting given what's going on in the outside world. But also I just feel like I'm going through grief. I feel unsafe. It's hard to like relax into that writing space
1: yeah, where you yeah.
2: feel like it's okay to block out the rest of the world and focus on really where you are. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I woke up the other morning with that, with this sense of like that moment of time where you don't remember what's happening. And then I remembered and like, you know, I don't have an income, like I'm fine, but I don't have an income, all of this, like uncertainty, how we can't make any plans, like all of this, right? The grief. And I woke up and, and I had that moment where I remembered and I was like, oh, and I remember this, this is grief, <laughs> right? That's right. That right? feeling you know, of
2: waking up and... Yeah. Not knowing, and then all of a sudden the dread pops back up, yeah. and it's like, "Wham, you get hit with it again, yeah, yep. that is so true
1: and and in, in, i I don't ever mean to say this I, I hate when people say the lesson I learned or the gift I got, but at the same time it's like I'm practiced. I was like, oh, but this is easier, right? This is easier than than the deep early part of grief, right so there's a there's a a practice of being in uncertainty uh, that is helping me along with this. So I don't know, probably other grievers feel that way too. It's...
0: It doesn't feel to me as bad a grief as I've suffered, but I also have not lost a person right. due to COVID-19. And if I did, I would probably have a big difference. My, my grieving is for our earth and human beings mm-hmm. that I, who I don't know all that well. Yeah, so it's a different, grief, but for me, it's also bringing up, it reminds me of living through the
2: Vietnam War when I was a teenager, basically. And every night, there was the body count on television. And then there was also this weird disconnect where you knew that some people were suffering tremendously and pain with their lives. And people were losing sons and brothers over there. But there are the rest of us who are just going about our daily lives with, um, really, if it weren't on TV at night, we would have had no direct contact with it and could be oblivious. And And I think that I feel that way about the coronavirus. It's like, it's out there and really bad things are happening to so many people, but I'm fine. And, and yet I'm really upset. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I'm really mainly, I think, upset for other people, sort of suffering mm. for them because yeah, my and life is fine.
1: And, and finding that space of, um, what happens in grief of like, I'm, my suffering is like still valid, even though it's not as life destroying as other people's suffering. Right. So easy to like yes. quickly go to like, well, all of the healthcare workers in New York City and all of the people who have died and the people who are housing insecure and food, right? Like all of that, which is legit, right? And it's great to spend time in those thoughts and sending thoughts in whatever you do uh, for those people. But it's also our uncertainty and our suffering is also like legitimate, though less. Legitimate. Right?
0: No, yeah, it's absolutely
1: that's, that's, legitimate. Yeah, that's
2: a really, yeah, it's not, discount you wouldn't have to discount it even if it's less severe. Yeah. And in fact, it kind of reminds us that we are all sharing this collective grief
1: to yeah, different it's, it's like that there was a there's a meme that's going around on Facebook that's like we're all um in the same storm, but we're not ah. the same ship. I don't know if you guys yeah. have seen that, but I was that's like really oh, that, cool. that explains it. That's that's totally <laughs> totally a great expensive. analogy.
0: Yeah. Um, I wanted to, so Monica, I'd love it if you read, but why don't you give us a little, um, preview or pertinent information about what you're reading so that people know what it's about. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, this, the piece that I'm reading is calling is called belonging and it moves through uh, the timeline of, um, 2013 to 2015, uh, which, uh, were not great years for me. So in 2013, in April, my son Harvey um, died uh, the the day after he was born um, from a uh, uterine rupture, an undetected uterine rupture. So he um, basically didn't get enough uh, blood, right? So no oxygen, so he had brain death. Um, And then uh, six months after that, I had a surgery to, to fix the, the uterus didn't heal correctly. I had a surgery to fix the uterus, which was supposed to help me have another baby, but it turned out that um, I couldn't, that the way that the tear was in the way that they, um, I almost died in that surgery um, and they saved my life, but they didn't save, they weren't able to save the uterus. And then um, I found out that my husband had been having affairs um, for like basically our whole, it, At first I thought it was just the beginning and then it turned out it was basically for our whole, like almost a dozen years together. Um, and so we tried to, or I guess I tried to (laughs) keep that marriage together, but it didn't work out. And so he met somebody in the middle of that. And so a year after my son died, my marriage ended. So from 2013 and 2014, it was just like, um, very devastating. And that it really felt like the path that I was walking down had, uh, really disappeared. Um, and so this piece, um, and then I met in 2015, I met my, um, current partner, who's, uh, amazing. Um, and, uh, we've put together our family. So now we have our, we each have a living daughter and then, um, she and I, uh, um, yeah, so we've so she and I've put our put our lives together. So we've kind of put our pieces back together. Nice. How old uh, well are your daughters, Monica? They're ten. Both. Okay. Yeah, cool. They're both ten. So she, we met in the kindergarten room. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so this piece is called "Belonging," and um, it began as like a study of of like kind of um, this music that I realized, oh, all these songs that have been significant have this word belong in them. And so I wrote it. And then I realized it's really like a study of my, the memoir that I'm working on. Um, You know, as we write, I think we find, I think it's about one thing. I think it's about my son dying, right? That's the main thing and grief, but it's really about, as I write, it's really about belonging and really about ways that we belong to each other, ways that we don't belong to each other, how we feel how we fit in, how we don't fit in, all that kind of stuff, so. Belonging. 2007, You Belong to My Heart. Save for Billy Joel, Tom Petty, and Old Time Country, Danny and I didn't agree on music much. His whiny white boy indie rock grated my nerves, especially paired with the grainy pfft pfft of the record player he played them on. He was even less tolerant of my queer feminist singer-songwriters as curved and resonant as the guitars they wielded. When it was time to pick a song for the first dance at our wedding, I searched for weeks for something we both might like, something with the appropriate sentiment, something we could actually dance to. Billy Joel, Johnny Cash, and Willie Nelson yielded nothing that fit all three categories. I had love song after love song that I'd love, but I knew he'd hate. Finally, on my way to work one morning, my shuffling iPod landed on a strong contender. How about you belong to my heart? I asked excitedly that night. He looked up from his New Yorker. That old 97's tune? I beamed and bounced a little on the balls of my feet. Yep, he snapped his hand into a fist, pumped it in the air in the universal sign of triumph and shuffle danced his way over to me. We had found our song. 2012 you belong to me our toddler dances on her squat little legs to the music playing in the kitchen I sway my hips and rounding belly right along with her as i chop vegetables to roast for dinner i sang to vesta when she was in my belly i stood in the shower feeling its hot medicine soothe the new aches my body had from accommodating her i wrapped my arms around the skin and muscle walls of her watery home i sang as i swayed my sweet one i call you my sweet one you're my only sweet one, one. With my all, I
2: call you my sweet one.
1: A favorite little ditty by a favorite band called Fish. I made Fido Vesta a playlist. As I drove to work each day, the Be Good Tania's and I assured Vesta that the littlest bird sings the prettiest song. The littlest bird sings the prettiest song. But it was my beloved Annie DeFranco who had the most important message for us. Me, a person who's never been too sure of this world, nor my place in it, I steeled myself to show this baby that she belonged here. Hoping she could hear me despite my swooshing heartbeat and all that gooey water in her ears, Ani and I sang. <clears throat> You're gonna love this, love this love- with so much more to tend to now baby brother this little guy swishing around inside me didn't have a playlist he didn't even have one song he heard puff the magic dragon and old mcdonald in the car for vesta and the only singing was the lullabies that put her to sleep but here in the kitchen came this song i kept hearing on the radio I belong to you, you belong to me, you're my There it is, little guy, I thought to him. There's your song. It's sweet and it's true, and it's the best I can do until you're here. I didn't hear any of the other words to the Lumineers' ho-hey, just the ones he and I needed, just the chorus, while chopping and dancing and growing inside me. 2013. I don't know where I belong. After he died, I lay in my bed empty, my body so recently full of all the blood and all that baby, my arms holding tight around what was left of him, the skin and muscle of my own belly, his only home. My new friends, mothers whose babies had also died, sent me songs that had brought them some comfort, songs about absence and starlight, songs with an endless ache. Willie Nelson and I sang Eddie Vedder's Just Breathe. Did I say that I want you? Did I say that I need you? Stay with me? Oh, let's just breathe. My baby never took a breath on his own, never cried or cooed, his silent soul cocooned in his failing flesh. Perfect on the outside, ravaged on the inside. I needed a reminder to breathe. My uterus had torn open when he was being born. Blood uselessly spilled into my abdomen and away from the placenta, the cord, his body, his brain. Hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. There are no songs about that. No songs about wasted blood and birth accidents. No words to put to this particular music. I made him a playlist then i put ho hey on there since it was his song our song i listened closely to the words for the first time now that his sister was occupied with preschool now that i had the time so show me family all the blood that i would be i don't know where i'll be.
2: I don't know, know where I went wrong!
1: 2013. You don't belong to me. On Independence Day, two months after my son died, I drove downtown for a class at the dance studio that was a second home. Autopilot and wrote, It was a place I could take the things I didn't know what to do with my body and my grief and the way it was slowly and excruciatingly smoldering inside me. The instructor told us that the theme for today's class was freedom, of course. I stood in the shaky shell of my body and stayed on the outside of everything where I lived now. On the outside of the joy, I saw so clearly beaming from the other dancers' faces, from the enthusiasm of their new movements, from the way they sang out loud to the songs the teacher played. At the height of the class's playlist, George Michael's Freedom 90 came on loud and in all its pop anthem glory. George and the teacher and some of the other dancers belted out. My eyelids heavy from weeks of crying, my zombie body making the steps the teacher made, my lips forming silent words. It's that I don't belong to you and you don't belong to me, yeah, yeah. My bony scaffolding collapsed. I hit the wooden floorboards in a crumpled child's pose. He didn't belong to me, not ever. He was not mine to keep, not the corporeal guarantee I thought myself entitled to. I began to loosen my grip on the filaments of ownership that I thought were cement. I began to let my son go. I howled my prayer from the floor in tune with the chorus. 2014. You Don't Belong to Me, Part Two. Maybe it's hindsight, or maybe my memory serves, and the way her name leaving his lips sounded like wind chimes on a warm spring afternoon really did betray betray him. Or maybe I was listening for it, listening so closely now to the way he formed his words, each lilt and tone, the way one becomes vigilant for deceit after betrayal. After the betrayal unfolds itself in front of you like a cartoon shopping list, page after page, comically slapping to the floor. I stood there suspended in time, her name still quaking the air between us and I knew, in that moment, I saw the exact contours of this new next woman. The way he would fit the way she would fit snugly between us. The way, whether or not she was a perfect fit, he would leave this life we had forced our malformed selves into. And one year and one month after our son died, he did. Because I don't belong to you and you don't belong to me. Yeah, yeah. 2015. I belong to you. I didn't believe in love anymore, not until the whole world tornadoed into my body the first time I saw the woman who would soon become the love of my life. It wasn't so much a courtship as it was a remembering, as it was a catching up, as if we'd always known each other but just had been out of touch our whole lives. It was a rediscovery of a deep belief in a true and lasting love we had each longed for and eventually given up on. Figuring it a childish fairy tale and settling into first marriages that matched us good enough, but not very well. Not very long after we started kissing, we started kissing with our eyes open. Relief down, waterfall down the front of me. Seeing her up close, finally. Feeling her soft lips puzzle piecing mine, I felt whole again. I felt whole for the first time. Cocooned in my room, glowing golden by the shaded lamp, we lay nearly nose to nose, quiet and listening to the playlist she created and continually evolved for us, quiet and listening to the stories of each other's lives told only through our eyes, breathing and breathless, our bodies snug, curved and resonating in perfect harmony. In that moment, the song we were quite sure Brandy Carlisle had written just for us shuffled its way into the room. Without a plan, we both began to to sing to each other, right there next to each other, up close, and also across all time and all space, across heartbreak, heartbreak and loss and betrayal, into the now, into the allowing, into the love. We sang, if I had all my yesterdays, I'd give them to you too. I belong to you now. I
0: belong to you. I belong to you now. I belong to you. Thank
2: you. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. Oh. That's so, so absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. Well done, Monica. Monica, how did you come
2: up with the idea of performing this? Um, You know, did you originally write it where the songs kept coming up and then decided to do it as a reading with the music?
1: Yeah, there's a, um, in Portland, we have a, a reading called Songbook PDX. And um, the, the whole reading, it's like, I don't know how often it is, but anyway, each person reads a song about, reads a piece that they wrote about the, a song that's influenced them. And then after they read, person plays the, they play the song, they play that ah. song. Um, so that's where I got the original idea. And then my, fr- my friend uh, Kate Suttis wrote this really beautiful piece um, about an M Ward song. Um, and the and the how it tied to the loss of her uh, son Paul and so it just got me thinking of and then I had written this belonging piece and so it just got me thinking about that so before quarantine I was gonna um, you know do this live and my friend Ann Gudger I'm saying all these names because they're such amazing writers <laughs> um, she and her husband do readings where he, she uh, reads and he plays the um, upright bass and so, so I just thought oh all these ways that we can incorporate you know and then I have friends um who are singers that I had hoped would be uh also involved but then once we were stuck at home um it didn't make sense to have so many people but anyway so um so then I thought well I was singing along to these songs so maybe what I'll do is play them use you know use these little snippets within the within the piece so that this reading that we just had was uh Kind of incorporated music in all these different ways
2: right because you did this was it just last week where you did yeah. this reading and then also all the other people joined in via zoom
1: yeah i should explain that first
2: <laughs> yeah no that, I, I, that was really a, it was so cool it was really a great idea it was it was probably in some fashion more intimate than doing it on a stage i mean in the sense that with Zoom, you see everybody who's there in the audience, right? And they all see each other's faces. Yeah, I, I watched that. That was really amazing. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit about your writing. You said, um, I guess, it was at the beginning of that event that writing had saved you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I wondered if you could just talk about that what what did you mean how did it save you
1: um when I could in the early days so my daughter was three and a half when um my son died and uh so she wasn't yet in school um and so there was mornings when I would just put her in front of the screen and I would write and I would just and that and and it was journal entries basically just like this is what's happening this is what i'm feeling um and there was a thing about um taking what was inside of me and putting it on the outside of me onto a page that gave me like a centimeter of room uh Mm -hmm. during that day during the days that i could write you know and like in those early days like a centimeter is a lot of room (laughs) you know um to be able to breathe you know and just like they were just a little bit better those days and then what happened was that i started when i did a lot of the public grieving on facebook and um and uh we got my i got my family got like all of these messages private messages from people we've known family friends of 40 years people i know in my life strangers right that was like i lost a baby i lost a pregnancy I can't get pregnant. I've had this infertility, right? This incredible amount of silent grief, right? And I knew like, oh, this is unbearable for me. And I have to like tell everybody on Facebook about it. I have to write it down on my pages because I can't survive with all of this inside me. And then all of these women, right, are are doing that are doing just that. We know them and we don't know their stories. And so, um, and you know, grief really can make you crazy. Like it makes you think and feel things that are not what you normally or ever imagine yourself to think and feel. And so I thought if they're all silently grieving in this way then they're all probably feeling crazy and not sure what's normal. (laughs) And so I started posting my journal entries essentially into this blog. Um, that eventually has become like sort of the fodder for my, for my book, but um, basically in the hopes that like, this is a way that people who are grieving can read something um, and know that they're not alone and not have to Right, we're afraid for whatever, for many reasons to not talk about it out loud or publicly. And so here's a way someone could just, if they stumbled upon it, they could feel less alone.
0: Can, I just want to say something that um, you were posting and I, what would, uh, what's the Harvey blog called? What was his? Um, it's Harvey dot com. Harvey And, um, and one, and one time, yes. And you were getting so much support riled up with other women who were grieving and had infant and child loss. And, and you said, this is why you should like my post about how fucking sad I am about my baby dying. Because you know what I mean? Because at that point, we only had a like emoji. We didn't have like, heart, sad face, right? And (laughs) and I'm like, and I was trying to understand. Like, I didn't know either. Like, Charlotte, and I can just tell you right now, we don't know. Well, that's not even true. I've never had even a miscarriage. I had two pregnancies, two children. I know Charlotte has a different story. And I'm like, reading your stuff, I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like my fucking post that says i'm so sad that my baby died and i'm like god she's right she's just telling the world and she wants us to see it yeah and you thank know, you thank you for slapping it, us in the face it was great miscarriage
2: <laughs> it's a really well you had i mean there's big difference between an early miscarriage which i have had one it happened like two days after i found out i was pregnant so it was super early yeah, but it you were like upset it about it. No, but don't don't poo-poo
0: yes. it. You were upset about it. It was a
2: it was it was a different experience than delivering a baby and having the baby die. But again, you're right, I shouldn't minimize it. Yeah. But I think um, first of all, loss by miscarriage is is extremely common, yes. but it's kind of unacknowledged, yes. right? it's not really talked about. Um, I think new, new pregnant mothers aren't prepared. No one says, you know, 20% of pregnancies end in an early miscarriage and you, you might not even know you were pregnant. I mean, it's like, it is this huge silence. Huge. And as a result, very invisible losses that people often have put up with on their way to actually having a healthy baby but the grief has sort of never really been acknowledged. And I, you know, I, this is maybe a sidebar, but recently I was doing a genealogical study with a a lady who's a professional and she tracked down um, all of my grandfather's siblings. And I, we knew them all, but she discovered there was a baby girl. Mm-hmm. who was who was nobody had ever mentioned her and she was buried in a different cemetery from the rest of my grandfather's siblings but like then there she was in this genealogy. it was so so excruciating and just sad because she had just never even been mentioned yeah. she just fell out of the whole family line I mean and- i like that's the way it often is.
1: Yeah, I mean, really, like my generation of mothers right now—we're really the first people who are able to talk about it. You know, I mean, we really are. Like, it used to be, oh, your baby died. Don't name it. You don't get to t- see it. It's gone. Just go home and have another one, right? I mean, it's right. So, so a lot of like what we're what we're doing now, and not just. Us, but you know in the in the last couple decades <laughs> uh you know we're able to to express it more and try, hope to hopefully to normalize it because it does happen it is it's one in four um babies die from conception to to year one so it's 25 percent, right i mean it's a lot and most of those are early and i also just want to speak to that point when i to, to the point of minimizing when I I went for a year to this amazing group that we have here in Portland called Brief Encounters, which is a a pregnancy and infant loss uh, support group, which was another way of saving my life by telling and hearing stories, right? Um, And I thought, my actual baby died. Like, why do they have a pregnancy loss people here, right? And then Mm -hmm. I sat with those women for a year and I saw their same grief. Right, so we tend to say like, oh, because there's something in our culture and in our, maybe in our humanness, that's like we have, we, I saw my baby and I held my baby. And so for some reason, and he was like almost here, right? And so for some reason in our minds, like that equates to like a, a more legitimate grief, right? But that I've seen women and I've been with women who've had very early second day, right? Like you're saying the first couple of weeks, whose grief was as big and as wide and as confusing as, as mine was, you know? They, yeah. Cause there's like an idea like, and I guess that's where it comes from, right? Where, where I was saying like, they would just take the baby a couple generations ago and say, go home and have another one, right? Cause there's an idea that we don't like bond with our children until they're here. But really anyone who's been pregnant, right? It's like, as soon as you find out, you're in love, you know, like you, yes. And you're planning and Mm -hmm. and we don't talk about it again, this kind of theme of uncertainty, since we don't talk about how frequently it happens, we think it's a guarantee, right? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. You know, it happens, but not to me. Right. Like, you know, so
0: that's, so key it's like it's and it's someone else i've said this to my therapist i go i don't understand why i'm so depressed because i don't even have the trauma other people have i wasn't uh, oh i've been sexually assaulted but not actually raped Um, my children didn't die um, blah, blah, I have all these reasons why I'm supposed to be okay. And I don't understand why I'm like falling on the floor at my therapist's office and considering killing myself. And i go and then even even shitty therapists go, Oh, that's not your that's that's doesn't matter. You can't compare, you know, your friend Monica's baby died. And you're sad because it's like, not, you know, it's nothing to do with each other. It's your system. And you know, so that was nice to hear even from the shitty therapist. I mean, and I've had some, yeah. Oh, um but it's yeah, no, it's so, and it's so big. It's like, it, it's like this big, and you can't even begin to tell someone about it. Except that you did. You told, you told Facebook, and you told your friends, and you went to your writing. Sorry, you went to your support groups and everything you did, and that's the only way to transcend it. We're you gonna like. Look at those poor moms from before when they must just get sent home. They're like, I, must have been lunatics.
1: Yeah, I have no Lu,
0: idea. Like, how did they do it? Yeah. Well, and I think about all the women
2: who lost babies, you know, like hundreds of years ago, where I mean, obviously it was even more common to lose babies in childbirth, and to, to die in childbirth. I mean, the whole enterprise was really dangerous and scary.
1: Yeah.
2: And we we live in a really different world where we can generally control our reproduction and um you know obviously many pregnancies are still accidents apparently yeah right but um yeah i just the idea that women would have like 10 children and bury eight of them
0: is just so horrible that is insane it's insane i remember
1: but i don't know if if i don't know if this is true i remember hearing it but that it used to say how many children do you have because that's one of the hardest things to a bereaved parent right you're at the playground if you have a living child and how many children do you have and you're like i don't know i don't know how to answer that question right because it's so taboo and so hard to talk about and but that used to be that people would say oh i have seven living and three dead or what right like that it was so common common enough that they were acknowledged but
0: yeah. yeah You know, um, last spring, I went to a yoga for grief um, workshop, a four-week series in Berkeley with my very dear friend, um, Ken Brenneman, who's very good at this. Um, he's a social worker in grief counseling, and he puts it together with this yoga. So I sign up in, uh, I don't know, January, or February, starts in April. And I signed up because, you know, I'm kind of grieving the earth. And then on March 27th, my friend Kimberly died of cancer. So then I was like really, really grieving. I'm like, oh, I get to go to this this workshop because now I have like a reason. But there are at least there were more than 20 people. One man says, I'm grieving the earth. And he was a little odd. He had like Asperger's like he was on the spectrum. And then he was really embarrassed that he said that. And I ended up, you know, pairing up. I go, I'm grieving the earth, dude. You should be, you can be here for whatever reason you want to be. So I was supporting that. Um, And, but anyway, this leads me to, this other woman had her, somehow her child died. She never really said how old he was or what happened, but there were some, you know, she was, she said she had no friends left, that nobody could be with her and her grieving anymore. And she told us that three times, three weeks in a row, bawling her head off. And she, I mean, and then she left and she didn't come back the last week. So I wondered if she was okay. I know she wrote Ken and she said, Ken, tell everyone I can't come tonight, but I'm going to be okay. But I thought, what, what, can, what can we do for someone like her that she has no friends left? Like what, Monica, what, can you, do you know about this?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a uh, so it's called Secondary Losses um and so secondary losses are exactly this and children are especially hard uh the loss of a children child is especially hard for people um and i to to sit with and i think that part of that is because like people like so uh after my son died people would tell me about what they were going to do at their birth so that what happened to me wouldn't happen to them right um right and it's and it's what it is is like I'm afraid right like I'm afraid and I need to separate myself from you because I can't acknowledge that this is something if this could happen to you it could happen to me and that's too hard to handle right yes Yes. um and so and and we don't have a lot of skills I think in this in this culture to sit with things that can't be fixed right and Again, it's happening right now, right? There's a lot of uncertainty and it's really, and I think there's a lot of calls to like, let's just open everything up, right? And I was thinking about that the other day and I was like, this is our inability to sit with discomfort, to sit with something that's out of our control and out of, um, and, and that can't be fixed, right? It can't
2: be fixed, not easily. And only painfully. Yeah, you know, people are rushing to say it's over. And I think the experts say this is actually the beginning. Yeah. Another whatever, 12 months, 18 months. It's, this is truly the beginning and people want to have it over with already.
1: Yeah. And it's, and so, yeah, and exactly. And so that's what I think that's a sort of a a global evidence, or at least in our cultural evidence of, of this inability, like, we 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 have these secondary losses because, our, and you know because we just aren't trained. We don't know how. We don't know how to sit next to someone and say, "Like I remember my best friend. I didn't lose. I I kept my two very best friends. They were incredible. I never could have supported any, them the way they supported me. But I remember my friend saying to me, Monica, this is the worst thing that could have happened." And I kept thinking in my mind, this is the worst thing that could have happened. But then I would think, no, my daughter's alive. I still have my family. I still have my job, right? Like then I would give all those kind of conditions, minimizing, like we've been talking about. And as soon as she said that, it just broke me open to saying, yes, I knew it. I knew this was the worst thing that happened, right? And because she had, for whatever reason, the ability just to say that, just to sit with it and not try to fix something that was unfixable,
2: you know. She gave you permission to really grieve, and yeah. that's kind of the only way to ever get through it is yeah. to experience it fully.
1: Yep. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that that's you know part of it, which I feel a little bit part of my secondary loss was a lot of the um, you know being involved in Nia. Um, and I'm, and I'm a massage therapist. I'm in a lot of holistic health and there's a lot of like positivity culture there. Right. Um, and that was really hard for me, uh, because there's not a lot of room for, for grief and sadness, if we're always going to gratitude quickly and if we're always trying to find the joy and if, right, like all that stuff. And it was started to become inaccessible to me. Um, and so finding new places where I could. You know really be able to to uh and i still find myself as like if you need somebody <laughs> to be the pessimist of the group it's me if you want me to like just let's keep talking about the hard stuff like it's me because it, i just feel like there's not enough room for it anymore
2: I, I, oh i think you're absolutely right i think part of it is um you know americans are optimistic and upbeat and it's like our culture wants people to go ahead and move on and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and also people have this idea that grief has got this start finish beginning middle, and where you like come to the end of it it's like I think that whole five stages of grief was helpful but it's obviously not a linear progress and where you just go through and then you're done you know and I think people want other people to finish grieving, yes, sooner than grief. And I mean, grief just can come back at any time. It's not something that you ever finish. No, the way ever. Finish yeah, some taking ever. a class,
1: like okay, yeah. I got an A, and now I'm on to the next thing. Yeah. yeah. In my in my support group, we I remember one time they said, hey, we just want to like let you guys know that about at about six months people are gonna start falling away. So we wanna talk about how we can be prepared for that and what, you you know, like finding the support that you need and blah, blah, blah. And I swear to God, you guys like clockwork. I, again, I didn't have a lot of relationship loss. I think, I mean, I, for some reason, I'm like blessed with this amazing community. And maybe it's because I was just telling everybody, this is how I feel and I don't (laughs) care, right? Like you will read it and listen to it. But I'll tell you what, at six months, those likes on my Facebook, plummeted right plummeted and again it's a natural thing like i am still i was still at the beginning right i was still trying to understand that it even happened at six months right and then people's lives are just moving on right they're just moving on and they can't and they can't sit they can't sit with it but there is there is a uh there was one person who was like you know in jewish tradition you get one year And then you're done so i want you guys to be done at one year and i was like absolutely not (laughs) i know for certain i'm not going to be done at one year like you know so you know monica this is making
2: me think of something else um i know it's pretty common when people when couples lose children marriages often end and I, i mean if you feel like talking about that aspect i don't know if that if you felt like that was what ended your marriage. I mean, obviously you talked about the infidelities of your husband, but was there something about the timing of discovering his infidelities that, that you think was connected to having
1: lost Harvey? I mean, it's so hard to it's it's hard to know. Um and, and actually there's um new information that like a lot of marriages don't end. Um, a lot that there's, that there's more, we, I can't remember what it was, but there was wrapped up in that statistic was something that threw the numbers. And cause I have very, oh. know, very few people actually, and I know a lot of people who lost babies and, um, I know very few people. So that's anecdotal, but, but there is, it is, but it is a huge stressor on a marriage for sure. Yeah. And when I think about it now, I mean, now it's been six years, uh, since we broke up When I think about it now, I I think about there was already obviously a lot of cracks in our, in our marriage. Um, and, uh, and and I think like the the intensity and the level of my grief and the way that we grieve differently, Mm -hmm. um, I think is, was probably a part of like, basically what happened was he got sloppy in his infidelity. Um, And so I don't know how intentional or unintentional that was, but it was like a couple, I I began to discover, right. It was this discovery of like, oh, it's just since Harvey died is how it started. And then no, it's actually been years. And then now there's a girlfriend and like, you know, and it was all, he
0: never told me any of it. It was all leaving clues. But just, I imagine that some people thought, oh yeah, Monica and Danny broke up because you know mm-hmm. the grieving was too much and he couldn't take it anymore yeah right How, I bet you a bunch of people said that oh yeah they said like, oh yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so you know that's your story to tell I'm like but oh my god like, uh, and and it, what really kills me about that and he and
1: I felt like he did a little bit of that too in the beginning of sort of blaming Harvey like this is Harvey's fault right like uh, and that, and or the, you know, the grief that resulted from Harvey, and that is really offensive to me, because it does happen, but that's not what happened. Dress, right?
0: No. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm taking well, you a deep know, breath. I'm, th- I'm thinking about <laughs>
2: adversity, and when couples encounter adversity, that is um, really a true. It's not just a true test of the marriage, but both people just become revealed in a way that they weren't revealed before.
1: And also changed, you know? I think that that's a, like, I think I'm such a different person, you know? Like, there's parts of my personality that are, that are different now, that are not, you know, that, that for a while, like, are not, I thought we were gonna come back. Like, I was, again, with this timeline, like, when I get back to normal, right and it was 5 years i remember a friend of mine sent me a text cuz one thing that t- happened for me was that my um sort of like uh my communication with people like with friends and family has really changed like i don't call back i don't text as often i'm i just not as communicative as i used to be and i that was one thing and my friend wrote me a uh, a text and she was like you never get back to me and da 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 and i started to write my normal spiel of like i'm still really having a hard time and i don't know you know and then I was like, wait a minute, it's been five years. She's sending me this text five years later and I'm still not able to communicate in our friendship the way that I used to. I'm not gonna be able to, <laughs> you know?
2: That it's, it's a permanent change. Yeah, <laughs> and that's
1: really stressful on a marriage, on a, on a relationship, you know? The way, that we, the way that it really alters like our DNA in, in some ways. And it brings out really great stuff about, uh, about us too. And then also just the way that people grieve differently, like, I don't talk about this too much, but my, my partner's had losses as well. And when I first met her, I thought like, if I'm ever going to be with somebody, they're going to have to be grieving because they're going to have to understand, but she and I grieve very differently as well, you know? And so we have some, we rub up against each other in that, like her grief is quiet and internal and right. And my grief is like constant and out loud, (laughs) you know? So I just sort of thought, like, I'll find somebody and we'll understand each other. But grief is just so, it's so different. You know,
2: that is, that's such a good point that people have grieving styles, or I don't know, that's what you call it. But, um, and they're really hard to even explain, you know, um, I think they're so personal, and you just have to kind of give the other person space to do what makes them feel better. I mean, I've kind of noticed that dealing with the pandemic. My husband, he deals with the anxiety and the fear in a totally different way than I do. He goes crazy buying gear and UV lights to use and and ordering things online, you know, and um, I kind of want to withdraw and ignore the news and go deep into my writing. And I was like, yeah, we both have to just give each other space to do what makes us feel better and not criticize and say, hey, you're overdoing it on the UV lights, for example.
1: Yeah. And that's part of sitting with it, Mm -hmm. right? That's part of sitting with the the discomfort of another person, right? And giving them some grace of like, okay, I don't want all these UV lights, but but this is supporting him. So, you know, this is helping him. So- I'm gonna sit with it, right? I'm gonna be with him in his discomfort,
0: you know? Yeah, yeah. just a different kind of grief, but we were talking about how all grief is real. Yes. Each time that I've come back from um, expatriate experiences, I lived in oh. Argentina and then more recently in China, and I have left those places in absolute agony. My life of that time died. It's yeah. not that I realize I'm living I'm still my husband. I, I have wonderful children. All those things. I have this memory of what we did. And then I came back to America. It's dead. And people go, well, America is great. Why don't you like it here? I'm like, well, I guess I do, but I don't want to live here. Right? And then they go, well, you're back with me. I'm your friend and you're back with me. And I'm like, it has nothing to do with you. So, so that's a great thing. I, I'm, it's my grief that I miss this whole place and all the things about it and the people I live there in this you know in the subways and the spit on the ground is nothing to do with that i want to have coffee with you right now yeah so it's that so people should shut the fuck up that's the name of our <laughs> yes. podcast about what they think about other people's grief
1: yeah and honestly
0: this. honestly and they, and then no one could understand that i had to buy books that validated that said when you repatriate to the to your uh, your home country it's a fucking shit show especially for the trailing spouse the person who's working is like yeah cool i got a new job or whatever but the trailing spouse is like oh, i made a whole life for I us a there, life for and there. i learned spanish and i learned mandarin and i took the subway with crazy people you know and then and no one gives a shit about that yep. they're like get over yourself Danielle.' so there's a completely crazy different grief monica on like thousands yep. of levels and degrees than yours, but it's so interesting how we're not supposed to have it. Nope. We're not and supposed to let it be.
1: i bet you anything, Danielle. Don't they, do they remind you of all the things you didn't like about it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> all the spitting people. Yeah. Yes. And I go- you know How hard it I, was when you first got there. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And how I went to the store and I bought clover instead of, you know, parsley because I couldn't even like read the package or see what was inside of stuff like that, which is not tragic, but just funny. Uh, Yeah, it was hard when I got there. And then I rocked that place. I was like, I was boss, and it's where I lived and was where I was thriving. And I had to come back to this piece of shit, (laughs) even one of the nicest places in the world with the best weather ever, right? I'm in Lafayette, (laughs) California, crying. Yeah. Day after day in the most boring place, and I finally ran into some guy. I met like, I don't know, a doctor appointment, and he's like, "What's your story?" I don't know why I'm talking to him. Like, okay, I go, "I'm moved home from China." He's like, "Oh, you poor thing, and now you're stuck here." Thank you, stranger <laughs> at the doctor's <laughs> office, who yeah. said that I'm allowed to think that Lafayette, California sucks ass after living in a 25 million person city, which is totally bizarre. Thank you, stranger at the doctor's office. Couldn't yeah. get that from a therapist.
1: Yeah. And then, (laughs) and there's those angels like that that just show up and they're like, oh yeah. you're Right. I remember
0: that conversation perfectly clearly. So there you go. I mean, and it's just, and so, like I said, so not on the radar of, of losing a child and still just like, we're just not allowed to be, oh, you can't be like that. Oh, you can't be sad. Oh, you should smile more. You'd be prettier if you smiled more. That's all in my book stuff. All of it, Uh, blah, blah, blah. Like, fuck you and the horse you rode in on you, people always telling us what to do. I don't get it.
2: Well, you know what? I do think that people want other people to stop grieving because obviously it makes them uncomfortable, but why does it make them uncomfortable? because they have a lot of, un, um, what's the word, unexplored, unexpressed griefs yeah. That are, that they don't want to face. I mean, yeah. I think that if you have somehow gotten through a lot of grief, that you are more willing to sit with someone else's grief because it isn't threatening in the same way I mean, maybe I'm just being like, you know, playing the
0: psychiatrist, which I do love to do,
2: but, you know, <laughs> psychoanalyzing other people. What a great hobby! Because body. you're not a
0: psychiatrist, but you play one on your podcast.
2: Exactly. <laughs> and um, yes, one of my nicknames in high school was Dr. Gabert. The doctor will see you now. But, um, you know, I think obviously when people push things away and they resist and they resist other people's grief. They're really resisting their own at the same time, and you know I get it. Life is sad, and your own sadness is enough sometimes. Maybe you don't want to experience other people's.
1: Yeah, and that and that's why this is a practice. Like I suck at sitting with people's (laughs) sitting with people's grief and sitting people and listening and trying not to fix it. Right, especially in parenting. You know, I mean, Mm. I like I like the one time like it really came home to me. We got divorced. Where We split up. My daughter was four and a half. She lost her brother, which she didn't really understand at that point, but she knew something terrible happened. Right. And like her, she gets in the car from being with her dad and she's four years old and she just starts bawling. And I'm going through my like, okay, what am I going to say? How do I help her? How do I fix this? And I was like, oh my God, she misses her dad. I can't fix it. We're not getting back together right like what i have to do is just sit with her and tell her it's really hard this is really hard to be four years old and to go back and forth and to have to miss your parent that you're not with and to want to be right and to validate you know and that was such a big lesson and but every single day i mean that was uh, six years ago every single day i have to stop myself if i remember from fixing her (laughs) right from telling, from stopping what she's feeling by giving her a solution or telling her it's not important or, right. Cause we don't yes. have, n- nobody's ever taught us how to do this. Right. This, it's pretty revolutionary when you think about it. Right. I mean, yes. also, also speaking of China, right. Ancient Chinese teachings have been telling us to do this forever. Right. <laughs> like, but so few people in our actual lives sit with us and listen, you know, and don't try to fix us.
0: That's what the miracle of the entire, you know, the 12 step programs and all of the group things that you sit down and share and say your name and say your story and no one's like gonna fix you. They're just like, thank you for your share. It is a miracle. Um, Mm -hmm. I am looking for online therapy because I don't have one and we're in Zoom land. And honestly, it's for free. I could just go to some fricking, you know, Al-Anon meeting, Codependence Anonymous meetings, whatever I want, and just tell someone my story, I'm probably going to feel a lot better. Yeah. It's free. I'm like, hmm, got to get on that. Yeah.
2: Well, it's, <laughs> it's I helpful. think it's the power of someone is listening and they're witnessing. I mean, yeah. that's just so healing sometimes to have someone witness your pain, yeah. not try to fix it, just accept it. But um, it's kind of acknowledging it. Yeah. and giving you permission to feel what you feel, yeah. then that's a great gift.
1: And it's like the only way out is through. That's right? true. That's the only way out is to, is to like really feel. And the more that we stop ourselves, the more that, you know, the more we are afraid of what's inside us and can't sit with other people. Right. It's such a.
2: Sure. It's such that's, a- why, that's why I had to cry all day on my birthday because I had 40 days of tears. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. that were all had um, accumulated. Yeah, and it was good when it was all over. Yeah, yeah. But you know, this is—I just to maybe sort of come back around to the to the pandemic and what we're living through. It's—we're um, all suffering losses of different kinds, and everyone is going through some sort of grief right now.
1: Yep, everybody. And
2: and it's. It's a ter. it's a terrible thing, but it's also um, an awesome thing. I think that we're all feeling it at the same time. Yeah. In different ways. I love that analogy that you mentioned same storm, different boats.
1: Yep. Yeah. And then, but, and then similarly, like that, grief is on a spectrum, right? You know, yes. Like it's all the same experience. There's just different levels of intensity of it, you know, like,
0: yeah it, it well, we could go on and on for a million yeah, years about this yeah, topic but, but this
2: topic it's it's uh yeah it's so relevant it's I our know. special our special like well one of our many our the grief edition but <laughs> I,
0: know. You know, I honestly this i think people are going to really like it's so important it's so important and not and right around the time that you went through it i had another friend go through infant loss and my, that beautiful, do you know, um, Jane Austin, the yoga teacher in San Francisco, yes. do you know, that she caught my baby. So she was a, she was a midwife before she was the yoga teacher of teaching women prenatal stuff. Right. So she, she, every year she collects all the names before she does like this whole altar of of babies who were lost. And so it's all around me, not just you, but like all these other swirling people that I might not know in person. So it's been in my awareness and, um, something that I didn't know. You know what I mean? Like I, like I just said, I had two, um, two pregnancies and two children and, um, I'm so very fortunate for that. And I'm also fortunate to know people who are, are real about themselves. And Monica, that is you. You are so real and have done nothing but um, be, you know, expose yourself, expose or be vulnerable, like Brene Brown. Let's be vulnerable. Yeah. And it's just very, very powerful. It's very powerful and healing and an example for all of us. Thank you. Isn't it? Yeah. I would just second that. Thank you. Yeah, thank yes, you. Yes, I don't know
2: how you are even able to read what you read without breaking
1: down. Yeah, lots, so, of, lots of therapy. <laughs> but also lots of writing. Yes. Right? Like I feel like writing does that, you know? It really not always. I mean the other night I had I cried about it while I was reading it at the reading, but um yeah, but writing that's is so freeing in that way. Like it Yep. Gives you a little little space.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like what you said, the centimeter of space, you wrote it mm-hmm. and then you could breathe a little more. Mm-hmm. That's really cool.
2: I remember taking a class from, um, you know, Emily Rapp Black, who, she lost a child to Tay-Sachs disease. Oh, yes. And yep. she wrote, she was teaching a class that I took at the Sanibel Island Writers Conference a couple of years ago. And she was describing how while he was ill, um, she would write, she said, I wrote scrolls. And she made this hand motion as if like scrolls and scrolls, just like so much writing was coming out and said that that saved her. And she was so adamant about it. And she went on to write a book about it as well. Um, But I think that that, she was probably, she was already a professional writer and, but you don't have to be a professional writer to use writing as a way no. <clears throat> to heal yourself.
1: Yeah, not at all. And I think that that's a big key, even right now, like with all of us, like we're talking about grieving is like finding the thing that gives you a little bit of space. Like, like, you know, Dan, I, and you do Nia too, right, Charlotte? So we all do. Yes. Really, that gives you yes. of space. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's a, you know, or writing or art or going for a walk or, you know, like just the, the I think one thing that's been so helpful in this time for me that I actually couldn't access as much um, after my son died was like these moments that I try to blow up a little bit, right? That's like the kids are like laughing and playing and having a good time. And then I just like take a breath and just like sit in that moment a little bit longer, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Get- to get that same kind of, right, the world is falling apart around us, (laughs) but not right here at this moment, you know? And I think about that with other, like, larger tragedies, too. Like, if you imagine, like, the people, you know, the stories from the people in the camps and the Holocaust, right? And the moment, like, they just had to eke out these, like, and again, not to compare what's happening to us to that, but, like, but in that larger experience of, like, finding these, whatever, is something that gives you a little bit of space and it's okay, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we punish ourselves for (laughs) feeling some relief and some joy in the midst of. Ah, that's
2: such a good point. That is really true. We do. And we don't let ourselves um, take all of the nourishment out of those little moments that we could. We go, Oh, well that was good, but we just go back into our negative patterns. Mm Well, ladies, it's been great talking to you. Both. So great.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is oh, amazing. Thank you, Monica. Oh, Monica, thank you. You're such an was... extraordinary writer. Thank oh, you. Oh,
2: thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode.
0: You can get more information about it on facebook.com backslash Sharla Danielle podcast.